Well, thanks for a bit of extemporization, John. Um, right. Uh, what makes board-level employee representation effective? Uh, actually, listening to what Jeff and Adrian have been saying so far, this presentation flows actually quite well from them, and I'll be making several cross-references to what they've said. Um, really, what I want to do today is to look at European experience uh, in order to try to assess what, it, what makes worker directors effective as a voice on the board. Um, and uh, in order to do that, I shall present the results of some research I carried out some, some time ago. Um, what's the problem? The real point is that when we look at employee participation as an issue, uh, we're familiar that it takes place in different ways, obviously. I mean, first of all, there's direct forms, there's representational forms. Um, there's a continuum of participation between information disclosure, consultation, negotiation. Um, it takes place at different levels, workplace, company, and so on. Uh, and, of course, naturally enough, covers many different topics, from tea towels and toilets right up to investment decisions. The real point, however, about board-level participation is that it covers the stages of decision-making, and that is the, the syndrome if you like, of decision-making within, uh, within uh, companies. Um, the point being that the board is where business strategy is made. And if workers don't have access to the very earliest stages of decision-making, uh, then they're always lagging behind. Um, a decision, first of all, is a glimmer in somebody's eye, then it's discussed with colleagues, then it becomes a proposal then it has to be agreed, then it has to be implemented and monitored. A lot of different stages to, the, to, to a business decision. Um, if you're carrying out uh, investment, for example, you're going to plan a new factory somewhere. Um, it's important for workers to be involved at the very early stages of that strategy. And this is exactly what you're lacking if you don't have workers on the board. You only get in, uh, uh, involved later on at sub-board levels, by which stage the decision has already been taken. So you might be involved in the implementation and the monitoring, but you're not involved in the early stages of the decision. And that is really the key point that's missing from, from Britain as opposed to other European countries. Um, so what I say here really is that uh, the level, in other words, the top level, the, the strategy level, board level, is linked to the stage. The stage and levels are linked. Um, and really, um, board level representation is the missing piece of the European the, the employee participation jigsaw puzzle. You know, we've got all the other bits, but we don't have that particular piece. Um, and so what I want to do today is to look at what makes board level participation effective, as opposed to just some kind of um, pseudo, uh, <coughs> uh, uh, something pseudo. Now, if we look first of all at Europe, um, I think it's quite important just to, um, sort of to re recognise that Britain is very much out on a limb. Um, the dark blue uh, colours are where you have state-owned and private companies, and you'll see that there are figures there that show the threshold at which company size activates employee board level representation. So it ranges, for example, in France from about 1,000. Companies with 1,000 employees then trigger board level representation all the way down to Sweden, which is 25. 20, a very, very low threshold indeed, and there are other all points in between. Now, by contrast, the light blue uh, countries, like Portugal, Spain, uh, Poland, Czech Republic, and Greece, are primarily, and also Ireland, uh, are countries where you have employee board representation at, in the state sector, where the private sector is, uh, is, is not party to that. And that leaves only a very small number of countries, actually, 
where you have no provision at all. And you'll see there are the UK, Belgium, Italy, and then Bulgaria, Romania, and then also the Baltic states as well, Estonia, Latvia, and Lithuania. Uh, but the UK, is, along with Italy, is by far the largest country without any kind of institutional form. Where there has been worker directives in the past in Britain, it's been very sporadic. Sometimes, as Adrian mentioned, you've had it in the post office in the steel, but these haven't lasted. There have been acts fairly soon. There are also a very, very small number of uh, voluntary cases in the private sector, but really so small to be pretty well negligible. Um, so as a result of that, in terms of the European context, you can see that the UK is very much out on a limb. Now, if you look then at specific countries, and obviously we can't go through all the 18 countries that have uh, uh, provision, but um, one thing, as you've seen already from the, from the uh, from diagram, um, size is, is an important feature of the, the, the company that determines whether or not you have worker directors. There's also variation by board structure. Some countries allow for unitary systems, others for supervisory systems. We already heard from Jeff about the uh, European Companies Alliance, which has a supervisory board alongside a unitary board. And then the methods for electing worker directors varies a lot, and the proportion of worker directors to shareholder representatives also varies quite a lot as well. However, to be effective, I mean, I think those issues are fairly negotiable in terms of policy making. What is not negotiable, in my view at any rate, is first of all that board level representation would have to be statutory. It has to be mandatory in, in companies over a certain size in order to prevent fragmentation of the whole system. Um, and also, I think there's evidence that you have to ensure there is a minimum number of worker directors on the board in comparison to shareholder representatives, um, not least to as Jeff again has made the point that he, he discusses issues with his substitute. Uh, you, you, board level representatives, employees, need a forum to discuss ideas and agendas before meetings in order to clarify ideas and to get some kind of feedback. Um, and I, I would also say the other central feature here is the need for unions to, uh, to ensure, first of all, that, uh, that a union network is required, or at least an employee representation network of a works council type you might find in other countries, is essential to ensure that there is accountability, again, there's some questions already come up, back into union and to works, works council networks. Um, you also require a union to guarantee training independently from the company, uh, a very important point, um, and also to reinforce the role as an expert in, a, in employment issues. Now, I'm going to come back to that in a few moments, but one of the points that uh, emerges from European research is that worker directors tend to specialise in employment matters as a sphere of their own expertise, as a way of gaining credibility on the board. And then also, of course, the need to uh, uh, have the skills necessary to develop constructive relationships on the board. Now, again, Jeff made this point when he was talking about the issue of consensus. Uh, in order to reach consensus on the board, you need all kinds of negotiating interpersonal skills. And they, I think, are best engendered through, through, through trade unions. So the role of trade unions in the whole process is, is in my view, critical. Uh, and the evidence for this I'm going to present to you with a few mo in a few moments' time. Um, in relation to the UK, I won't mention the bullet report because Adrian, of course, has already dealt with that very admirably. Um, uh, um, uh, Janet's mentioned Brexit as being an issue in, in relation to the current debate. It's also the issue of, of ongoing corporate scandals. One thinks of Sports Direct, one thinks of um, um, uh, Amazon. 
and I think these issues of corporate uh, misdemeanours has also refocused our attention onto the structure of the board. Um, and it's mentions already been made of Chris Philp. Um, Theresa May, when she made these comments back in July, uh, shortly after that, Chris Philp MP, I think he's uh, Croydon South Tory MP, came up with um, this uh, um, policy document published by the High Pay Centre called Restoring Responsible Ownership. And I'll just say a few, unless you're dealing with this, are you dealing with this, Janet? You're not, okay. In that case, it's probably appetite for me to say a few words about this. Uh, Phillips's proposals, um, uh, there are three. One is mandatory publication of pay ratios. Another one is an annual binding shareholder vote on executive pay. But I think the one from our point of view, which is most important here, is uh, he would set up a mandatory shareholder committee with an employee representative attending. And I'll just say a few words about that, because I want to just show you how far it falls dramatically short of anything that even looks like worker directors. Um, proposal three, his proposal, is that there would be a shareholder committee, which would be kind of a parallel level uh, with the board, that would consist of the top five shareholders in the company. And if one of those five shareholders didn't want to serve, then you simply come down the list of, of, of shareholders until you had five. It doesn't take corporate decisions. Um, the role of this shareholder committee is to uh, deal with nominations to the board, um, is to deal with pay issues, particularly uh, executive pay, and is also to ask questions. And any question that's asked by the shareholder committee has to be answered by the board. And on this shareholder committee, there would be the chairman of or chairwoman of the board and also one employee representative who is specifically not to be a union representative. That's down in Phillips's proposal, which I think is very significant too. And in addition to which, the employee representative on the shareholder committee would be non-voting. That person would simply have a voice, would be able to ask questions or help to make recommendations on nominations and on pay issues. And the aim of Phillips's uh, proposals are basically to, what he says, to re-empower shareholders. Now notice that's a very important phrase, I've quoted it from his document, no mention of employee interest or representation at all. So this whole proposal, I mean, although it's gained some currency as being, you know, to do with worker directors, actually falls so far short, it really can't be seen as anything of the kind. Um, so, as I say here, look, uh, presence of an employee representative on the shelter committee is clearly not board representation as we understand it elsewhere in Europe certainly not in relation to what Bullock was proposing, anything like that. And so what I want to do now is just have a look at the conditions that are required to guarantee worker directors' influence on the board, not just to have worker directors as a, as a fiction or as a, you know, a cosmetic add-on, but to have genuine influence on the board. Because, frankly, if you don't have genuine influence, there's no point. You're just getting sucked into the structures without any real uh, influence back. And really, the, the point I want to make is that the, the kind of European experience we've heard, you know, that we, we can see elsewhere, will help us to uh, discuss our own policies here in the UK, um, with a lot of reservations, however. Um, first of all, the, the, the main issue here, which has already been mentioned, is the question of incorporation. And there is this paradox, and it came across very... Adrian brought it out extremely well just now in his presentation on, on, on Bullock. There is this paradox that if you are a worker director on the board, either you are integrated into the board system and you become part of the board system and thereby you risk losing uh, the... the um, 
accountability back to your, uh, your employees. You, you risk losing the trust of your constituents because they see you as merely another board <coughs> member and as being kind of going native. And in fact, I quoted, this is from Adrian's presentation just now, he quoted Frank Chappell, who put it really nicely. He said, if you go and live in Australia, you end up talking like an Australian. Now, that is a very neat and uh, uh, clever, uh, uh, succinct summary of the problem of incorporation. If you go and live in Australia, you end up talking like Australian. In other words, if you're a work director on the board, you end up being just like another shareholder representative. So that's one risk. The other side of the risk, however, is what the employers fear, which is if you are independent, if you do obtain your, your independence and your links back to your constituents, then you risk bringing confrontation and adversarial approaches onto the board. And that's why Adrian also quoted the CBI at the time of Bullock as reflecting what he called unremitting hostility to the Bullock proposals. And the reason why employers were unremittingly um, uh, hostile, while the Institute of Directors talked about Caligula uh, and, and making his horse into a console, this kind of very inflammatory kind of comment, the reason of that is because they were worried that unions were going to bring collective bargaining onto the board and that a nice, cosy structure of consensus on the board would be undermined by these unions coming from outside and stirring things up. So that is the problem, the problem of incorporation. Now, when I did this research in, in, the, in European companies, which I'm about to come on to, um, the, the question I had was how do all these worker directors across Europe, and there are 16,000 of them, uh, how do they avoid these issues? And when I went to the ETUI, I spent three months at the European Trade Union Institute a few years ago doing this work. Interestingly, the Germans and the, uh, the Dutch and the Scandinavians didn't know what I was talking about. They really had no concepts of this problem as being a problem. And I soon realised that this is a very British issue, the question of incorporation. Um, so the risk here is not to concern European worker directors. Why is this? Well, uh, the research I did was based on um, uh, 20 interviews, intensive interviews with worker directors across... I won't go into all the methodological details. Um, but I asked them to reflect on their influence on the board. I was very interested to know what their influence, how they assessed their own influence on the board, how they evaluated their relationships with other board members, but obviously shareholder representatives in particular, and to assess their achievements and disappointments. And this work was part of a, um, later on, Jeremy Waddington and Annie Conchon wrote a, a book, which I would heartily recommend to you, called Board Level Represent Employee Representation in Europe, which is a survey of the, all 16,000 worker directors across Europe. They had a response rate of 4,000, so they had a response rate of 25%, which is pretty damn good, actually. Uh, and this book here is really a very, very valuable resource on the, 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 the uh, complexity of the operation of worker directors in Europe, and I, I really, you know, if you're interested, then you should read that book. But my little bit of it was uh, intensive or qualitative interviews with just a few of these worker directors who were uh, identified for me by the ETUI as being worker directors who already known as people who had influence on the board and had been the success of their board membership. So it wasn't a, it wasn't a representative sample. It was a deliberate sample designed to show up the, 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 the most influential area that uh, worker directors could um, um, uh, <coughs> activate. Um, 
so the first question was uh, their links with workplace representatives and unions. And the first thing to be made there is that all the worker directors, the, the ones that I interviewed, had tight relationships with their uh, works councils, with their trade unions. They were very often very active in their trade union. Um, a bit like Jeff, who's also a member of the European uh, Works Council. It was not un uh, it was quite common, generally, for worker directors to have multiple offices with their, and a lot of experience in their unions. Um, except where the law refused, wouldn't allow that. So in the case, for example, of France, if you are uh, a worker director in a French company, you, you are not allowed to be a member of the Works Council. Whereas in Germany and Austria, that's quite normal. Or indeed, in the case of the Netherlands, the, the particularity of that particular system is that um, Works Councils will nominate a member of a supervisory board for their company, but that person may not be uh, a member of the union in that company, or indeed an employee of that company. So they tend to be much more independent. They tend to be accountants, lawyers, academics, who are very, very sympathetic to trade unions, but they're not actually employed in that company. So there's a more arm's length kind of relationship. So uh, the law varies a great deal in, in how worker directors come to be there. Um, but the point is they're all active in their trade union. This is the point I'm making. They all had a lot of experience in the trade union, and it gave them the confidence to make their points in board meetings. Um, the way which they operated was to focus on employment relations. One of the points that employers would sometimes say, well, how can a worker ever uh, cover all the range of things on, you know, we're talking about on boards? Well, no, you're not supposed to. Actually, boards, shareholder representatives, maybe accountants, lawyers, they had their own specialisms already. Worker directors will specialise in employment relations. Uh, they will focus on the employment relations aspects of the business strategy that's being discussed. Um, they also, we had a professional relationship with shareholder representatives. Um, they specialise in employment relations rather than general strategy, trying to give a worker perspective to discussions on the board. And nice quotes, we think of the employees who other board members sometimes forget, reminding members of the board that workers are actually a rather important part of the company. I try to ensure that the return on capital isn't the only criterion of company policy, a rather nice quote as well. And the discourse generally reflected a sense of common purpose with other board members, which leads on uh, to the occasional disagreement. Because again, this point came up just now. I think, was it Adrian or somebody else a point about, or was it Roger, who asked about whether there were, you know, what happened when there were disagreements on the board. Um, there were occasionally serious disagreements. For example, in a Dutch company, the American parent company uh, wanted the Dutch subsidiary to take out a loan in order to subsidise its own failing operations in the States. And the worker director refused because it was a very bad risk for the Dutch company, whereupon later the American company actually sold the Dutch subsidiary, simply because the Dutch subsidiary hadn't done what the American parent had wanted. Or, in the case of dividend payments, um, there was a scandal in one company where uh, the, the Dutch company wanted to increase dividend payments uh, to its shareholders at the same time as it was applying for state aid to uh, subsidise um, short-time working. And it was thought the two things going together were completely weird. And there was a big bust-up over that too. And there was a compromise, however. And they came to a, an agreement whereby dividends were actually frozen um, during the period of time that the layoffs would be uh, activated. Um, the shareholders themselves, though, and this is a really important point, are not themselves a cohesive block. We tend to think, oh, shareholders all got the same ideas. No. 
And there were many cases that came up in, in my case studies where uh, shareholders had very diverse views themselves. And it was the skill of the worker director to work on those divisions. So, for example, mergers and acquisitions, there were a number of cases where in German companies, um, uh, the worker director who uh, was concerned about a, a merger pointed out that the company that was being merged with was too similar in its profile with the merging company. And therefore, there was a concern about employment levels. Um, and in fact, there were enough shareholder representatives who shared those problems, you know, the, the same issues, to, 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 to knock that particular merger on the head. Or outsourcing to low-cost European Union companies. There was a case where a Danish uh, worker director successfully argued against outsourcing to, to the Czech Republic, um, because, pointing out that labour costs aren't the only thing that should be taken into account when making a business decision about relocation, um, and was successful because he managed to persuade other members of the board likewise. Uh, or a new building. Uh, a company wants to put up a huge new building, a kind of status-oriented new building, which is going to be hideously expensive. And the worker directors were very concerned there too about the cost and argued against it. And, and one could go on. I mean, there are many, many different cases. If you're interested, the, the full interviews are published by the ETUI um, in, in this book here. I was about to say it's available for all good bookshops. That probably isn't true at all. Um, you, you need to probably go to the ETUI to, to get it. But if you have the chance, again, the interviews are really interesting because they give you some of the, the complexity and the, 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 um, uh, the fluidity of a lot of these discussions. Now, having said that, though, as Jeff has said very importantly, the board in European companies tends to seek consensus. And, uh, and this is a long quote, and I, but I'm not apologising, but I think it's a wonderful quote. Um, this is the, one of the Austrian uh, worker directors who said, of course, the shareholders' representatives can outvote us if they wish. Worker directors are on a, a minority, they're usually a quarter or a third. But the dividing line between the two sides is not as clear-cut as it may seem. We don't just vote against everything on principle, but we don't just say yes and amen to everything either. Sometimes a better argument wins, and our proposal is accepted. As a result of preliminary talks, ultimately, it happens only rarely that we vote against submissions on the supervisory board. However, everyone, and this is a key thing, everyone knows that no is always an option for us, and this knowledge is enough to get people to seek a consensus. It's because the shareholder majority know, worker directors can vote no, that they try to ensure they don't by seeking consensus before. And that's exactly the point that Jeff was making about your pre-meetings pre uh, on the supervisory boards, exactly the way in which uh, continental companies will operate. They will try before the board meeting to seek a consensus so that the board itself can be consensual. Um, which means that com compromise is a key element on, on board-level discussions. Um, a lot of the worker directors said that opening discussion of the board is important in its own right, uh, but implicit is this uh, readiness to compromise. The, uh, one German worker director said, well, the board wants compromise so that worker directors can't turn around later and say, we didn't agree. Um, and another worker director had a really interesting, very, very insightful phrase. He talked about a, a critical consensus. So there is a consensus on the board, but it's a critical one because it's continually being remade issue by issue. Uh, there's respect. Uh, on both sides, but the consensus is not taken for granted. It's something that is renegotiated each time. And again, it's a skill. This is my point about interpersonal negotiating skills of worker directors and why the union is so important in supporting them in that role. It, it is exactly that point, because they have the skill to maintain this kind of consensual activity. Uh, and interestingly, Czech, Hungarian, Polish law allow worker directors to submit minority reports to shareholders. 
in cases of dissent. And all had done this. They'd all had various issues on the board with health and safety redundancies where they had issued um, a, a minority report to shareholders. Um, so um, the question of confidentiality, which, uh, again, I, I asked just now, uh, Jeff, a question about this. Um, this was an issue, actually. And again, I remember at the time of the Bullock report, uh, something else that uh, employers were very concerned about. They thought, well, how could all these, um, these uppity shop stewards, uh, worker directors, not be trusted to keep commercial secrets, which they'll hear about on the board? Um, and in fact, all the worker directors had developed strategies of one form or another um, in order to deal with that. Um, uh, Jeff, for example, mentioned you know, these sort of leading questions uh, to uh, works council, European works council, as being one way through it. That one refused all confidential information unless it was affected the workforce. So in other words, some protected themselves by simply not allowing the receipt of confidential information Others removed certain figures. Some asked for prior clarification over what they could and couldn't divulge. But the, the point is that in every case, confidentiality was not seen as a serious barrier to the operation of worker directors. In every case, these issues were taken into account by the board and, and uh, solutions were found to them. So as an evaluation, as I've drawn to an end, the membership of the board by, by my response, and don't forget, I keep saying this, these were not... It wasn't a random sample. These were de deliberately selected to be people who were successful and influential on their boards. But they saw it as positive. They saw it as an additional way to acquire information to represent workers. They thought it made both sides more realistic. And they learned a great deal about the operation of the company from their discussions with the shareholder representatives. The shareholder representatives learned a great deal from the worker directors. Um, and it improved the quality of decisions by ensuring that the employee representative, the worker perspective, was taken into account at the very, very earliest stages of decision making. Um, and the areas they covered, health and safety, investment strategy, grading, I mean, a whole range of subjects where they all failed at one point or another they'd had influence over the, 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 the board. Um, and one of them said, well, the global financial crisis might alter the challenges, but the basic role would, would stay the same. Um, so in cooperation then, you know, our, our worries and the Bullock's worries uh, were not actually really uh, a, a problem in any of the countries I looked at. Uh, for the reasons I've already given, uh, working directors are well integrated into works council union structures. They share support structures of the union for advice and discussion. They have a sense of identity with their union, and so they, they, they feel um, uh, accountable back to it. Uh, they develop knowledge of employment relations and specialist skills, so they are seen by the board as being specialists, and they're supported by their colleagues on the board. This is why I think you know, having a one-third membership is critically important. I mean, to have one representative on the board is really not any use to anybody because that person will rapidly find him or herself getting excluded or marginalised. However, the real question then is, which we were talking about earlier on, would this experience, would worker directors work in Britain? And the real question here is transferability. Uh, and the, the thing that really hits you when you're looking at the European experience is that it reflects a pluralist, not a unitarist perspective. The, the, the managers and the employers in Germany, Netherlands, Scandinavia and other countries have an assumption that the workers have a legitimate view to express. 
uh, you don't tend to find, well, you do in France and Italy possibly to some extent, but generally speaking, that the unitarist view of many British or American managers that, you know, uh, you've got to keep out the unions because they're, uh, you know, um, something awful, uh, or you've got to suck them in to make sure they're marginalised and of no value. Um, that kind of view is, you just don't find it very much, certainly not in Germany. The unions are seen as part of the, 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 well, the works council system is seen as part of the, the structure of, of the way in which decisions are taken. Um, and, uh, well, again, I've, I've made these points already. I don't need to go through them again. But the real question is whether these issues about common purpose, compromise, notion of critical consensus, confidentiality, whether those issues would actually transfer into a British context. I think that's where the issues become much, much more complex <coughs> and difficult. And I'm going to be very interested in what Janice has to say about this in a few moments, because these are the kinds of things we know we have to discuss when we're trying to transfer practice from one system to another. So the conclusions, then, um, uh, are that... Um, yeah, the role play by unions is critically important in my view um, because work directors are linked back into these representational structures. The training they receive from unions independent of the company is critically important in ensuring they retain independence and also that they have the skills required, which can be the result of their union experience, uh, in order to uh, maintain uh, trusting and um, fruitful relationships with shareholder representatives. Um, and I think the real issue here is the critical trust. Uh, if, if, if worker directors can ensure the, uh, trust on the board, but in such a way that they maintain the trust both of their membership and of the shareholder representatives. I mean, that's the, 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 the tightrope they have to walk. If they can do that, then that's when they are effective. And I'll finish there. Thank you. Thank you, Mark. Thank you.